picking back up with uh, the God of Jacob. I know last week we had a guest speaker, and, uh, and so this week we're going to be in the story again, and then actually next week we have a guest speaker again, and then we're going to finish out the story after that. I think it's like another five, six weeks in a row. So I kind of need to bring you up to speed on where we're at in the story. We're uh, following the life of Jacob in Genesis, and it started off pretty rocky. In fact, it's not really getting better today. Um, Essentially, if you think you come from a dysfunctional family, you would certainly understand the story of Jacob and Esau. Their family is not put together. We essentially have two brothers that come out, and they are pitted against each other from the time that they're born. And you've got Rebecca, the mom, who loves Jacob, and you've got um, Isaac, the dad, who loves Esau. And it says that they essentially, the, the two parents are pitted against each other, and the two kids are pitted against each other, and so it creates all this conflict. And we saw that Jacob is, he comes out and they call him the deceiver, and he essentially lives up to his name by stealing his brother's uh, birthright and the blessing from their father by putting on goat skin and, and faking that he was his brother, which just is really awful. Poor Esau, he's so hairy, that goat. Okay, anyway, so, um, and so, we pick up the story with the, uh, Jacob has just stolen the birthright and the blessing from Esau, and now that's kind of where we're jumping back into the story. And so Esau obviously is upset, but we see how he treated what was his, what was offered to him, what should have been his. It says he, he treated it with disrespect, like he essentially gave it away for nothing and got up and walked out of the room with no remorse. And then the day came where he was actually fooled out of it, and it says he was angry as if God didn't ahead say that the, younger, or that the older would serve the younger, and as if he hadn't already sold it to his brother for essentially a bowl of stew. We talked about how our appetites somehow uh, sometimes um, cause us to give up our position. That like sometimes when we're called to a certain place, we actually give it away because of the things that we're not willing to deal with in our life. We let those appetites take over, and then we miss what God really had for us. And so we're picking up the story with Jacob has just fooled the dad, Esau's really annoyed. And remember, Esau is this hunter, sort of manly dude out in the wilderness. Uh, he goes out for days on end. He comes back with the meat for the family. Jacob is, stays in the tents. He's got a lot going on. It's not necessarily like he's very feminine, but he's smart. He's crafty. He is a deceiver in a lot of ways. He's a manipulator. He's, a, he's somebody who plays all the angles and knows what's going on and kind of works the the system from within, okay? And so these are the two brothers that we have. And so we're picking up with Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. So it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob. You could, you could understand why he would be upset. Like you could understand why he would hold a grudge because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So he knows he could just go kill his brother Jacob right then and there, right? But he knows that his father's not going to be cool with that. His father's not going to want one of his sons to kill his other son. It makes sense. Like, these are terrible parents, but they're not that terrible, right? They're like, they're like really bad at, at making a really great family, but they're not okay with one brother killing the other. Um, and so he says, basically, I'm going to wait for dad to die. And then it doesn't matter who has the blessing or who has the inheritance. I'm just going to kill my brother and take everything, right? Because I'm a skilled hunt, hunter, and if the two of us are pitted against each other in a, a octagon to the fight to the death, there's no way Jacob's coming out of that, right? Like, I'm going to take him, okay? And so he says, but I'll, but I'll wait till my father is, is basically dead. Uh, verse 42, when Rebekah was told that her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to your brother Laban in Haran. And 
And Rebecca wants desperately to make sure that Jacob is in charge, wants desperately to make sure that Jacob will be safe through this, wants desperately to control the entire situation. And what's interesting about this, and this kind of happens whenever you are a very controlling, manipulative person, which Rebecca is. She comes from a controlling, manipulative family. We're going to find out later her brother, Laban, is one of the most controlling, manipulative people in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament. Like he's he's a, a terrible person. And so she also has that, like, I have to control, I have to be in charge, I have to make this work, I'm going to keep playing the angles. And what happens when you're a controlling person is you essentially end up controlling every aspect of your life until there are no people left in it. This is the last time Rebecca's actually going to see Jacob. She thinks she's going to be able to control this whole situation and send him away, and then she's going to call for him later to come back. But in reality, this is the last time she's going to see him. She's about to send him away, and he's never coming back. He's gone. So her goal of putting him in charge and making sure he gets the blessing and he gets the inheritance and trying to make sure he doesn't get killed by his brother and trying to work the system and the angle, this, this, it's, it's sort of worked in fooling uh, Isaac. It's not going to work here. And when we live in a way that is so controlling, when we don't understand that when God tells us he's going to do something, he's going to do it in his time. So when God says before those babies came to her, the older will serve the younger, it was never her job to make that happen. Oftentimes when God tells us to do things, we try to force it. We try to make it happen. And we see this happening over and over in the, in the storyline of the first uh, families that God had reached out to and started relationships with and had covenant relationships. We see it in Abraham trying to force the baby to come when it, when it seemed like God wasn't going to be able to follow through on it. We see it here where Rebecca's trying to force things. And you need to understand that when God says he's going to do something, he's faithful to it. Now, sometimes it's not in our timing, but when we then start to try to control and make it happen, we just create more chaos and more turmoil and more fallout from essentially what is our sin, trying to put ourselves in the place of God. And that's what she's doing. She's trying to control things She's trying to make it happen. She's trying to make God's end of things, make him kind of hold out. And in, in the end, what God said is going to be true, but they're going to go through a ton of chaos and turmoil to get to that place. Verse 44, she says to uh, Jacob, stay with him for a while. My, this is my family. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, Right? Like what, you, what we did to him. Just going to throw that out there. Right? I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? And she doesn't understand this is the last time she's going to see Jacob. Right? This is, this, she will end up losing on both fronts here before the story is over. She will basically live out the rest of her existence very unhappy in a place where she's not with the son that she wants to be with and she's not seeing the things that she wants to come to pass come to pass, and she won't actually be there when the older serves the younger. She'll be long gone by that time, right? Because she's trying to control God. Uh, verse 46, then Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted. So this is where she then, again, starts to control and manipulate and start to move to a place of sending Jacob away. So she says, then Jake, Rebecca said to Isaac, um, and you can just imagine her yelling, right, over Fox News or whatever's going on in Isaac's man cave, you know, right? He's He's old and he can't see and he's, you know, 
There's the TV's on super loud. He's screaming at everyone. And everyone knows exactly what's going on all the time. Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. He's, she's speaking directly to the uh, wives of Esau. She's basically saying, look, I can't live with these women. We've, we've settled here, and Esau has taken women from the areas around us here. And I don't, I don't appreciate these people, and I don't want them in my life. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So she sets up a scenario where Jacob should take a wife from somewhere else. That way she can send Jacob away. That way Esau won't kill him. And so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Isaac comes off as being very passive and being very manip- manipulable, very able to be manipulated. Uh, very, I don't, there's a word there somewhere. Uh, yeah, he's, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Gullible, Daniel. Um, we should have Daniel preach sometime. Uh, he's a smart dude. Uh, it says, then he commanded him. So, so J- Isaac calls Jacob together and, sh- and he blesses him. He's going to send him away. And so he sends him with a blessing. It says he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, a woman. Do not marry one of the people from around here. Do not marry a Hittite like your brother. Don't marry somebody from our area. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And some of us are like, oh, good. Whoa. Go marry one of your... Co- this is... Is this Patton or Ram or Georgia? What's going on here? So, it, w- it wasn't a lot of options back then, okay? So, um, he, he says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Armean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So uh, connecting all the dots, basically, he sends him away to find a wife in the... Uh, same place that a wife was found for him, right? Abraham had sent one of his servants out to this area to find a wife for his son Isaac, and then uh, they had found Rebekah there, and she had come to live with Abraham. So now she's sending Jacob to the same place where her people, her family line comes from. And basically, um, this, this is really significant because Isaac is blessing his son as if he is the one who has the covenant, and as if, if he is the one who has the blessing. In other words, I'm going to send you away, but I, actually before you go, I'm going to give you this blessing because you are the one that God is going to fulfill this through. I want Abraham's covenant to now apply to you, no longer to Esau, now to you. So Isaac is, understands that his word is his bond, and when he gave away that blessing to Jacob, it was for real. Um, and then it says, uh, verse uh, Genesis 28, so we, we're going into the next chapter, right? So it says, now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padanaram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padanaram. I'm saying this terribly, so just don't judge me for it, right? Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, something, the sister of something, Neboeth, 
the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the, to the wives he already had. So th- this just gives you insight into Esau, right? He's feeling rejected by his family. And this is probably the reason why God's not choosing to continue the line through Esau. When he finds out that his, his parents basically have sent Jacob away to go get a, a preferred bride from a place that's like, a, like okay to, to bring home a wife from, he basically says, well, fine. What I'm going to do then is just even make my parents even more mad. I'm going to marry a third woman from this Hittite village just to get after my mom. And this is the thing. Like, I think a lot of us, as we grow into adulthood, uh, we are in one of two places. A lot of us say, like, I want to be just like my parents, right? They were amazing. They're a great example to me. There's a lot of things about them that I want to emulate. They had a great, maybe in some of your situations, they had a great marriage, or they were really financially responsible, or they're you know, people that I want to be like, right? So we end up here, right? And that's sometimes good, right? Sometimes we had a great example, and we can, you can live and, and, and make that part of our lives as well. And then there's some of us on the other side where we didn't have a great example, and we're just so dead set on not being like our parents that we're like going to do everything the opposite way, right? And sometimes that's good because we had a bad example and we're going to live a different kind of life. But sometimes it's, it's actually just punishing everybody. Like you, you feel like you, oh, well now people have been mean to me or, or, and I'm going to punish them all by doing something that hurts me to basically get after the rest of my family. I'm going to get, my mom's going to hate this even more, right? She's going to be suffering even more. If I bring another Hittite woman into this house, I'm going to be married now to three people which, by the way, anyone who tells you the Bible argues for uh, polygamy has not read any of these stories. Because in the first chapter of Genesis, it says basically like man and woman will come together and they will be, you know, it's talking about monogamy in like the first couple chapters of Genesis. And here, anytime we see polygamy, all we see around polygamy is essentially hurt feelings, uh, chaos. Uh, destruction. There's like never, there's nobody in scripture that would lives a polygamous lifestyle where we go, that, that's awesome. We should be like that person. I challenge you to find it. The Bible does not argue for polygamy, right? It describes what dumb people do sometimes, okay? And often when we see it, we're like, don't be like these people, right? Don't be like Esau who takes three terrible wives and just throws a hand grenade into his family, Right? And causes all kinds of chaos to get back at his parents for, you know, whatever, preferring his brother. Like, that's really, really messed up. And polygamy is not a thing that God wants us to do. He wants us to, to have one husband or one wife for all of time. This is what we, we, we see Jesus talking about it later in Scripture. And we see Paul sort of closing the door on it and basically saying, look, this is God's preferred way of building the families in a society is one man, one woman for life. This is what it looks like. And there are times in any marriage where you're like, God, why do I have to stay with this person forever? I just want to be out of this. And you know what? This is on purpose. God wants us to have solid families so we can raise children in a very safe environment and make sure they are able to follow Jesus as well. And so take your marriages seriously. And anybody who tells you who that polygamy is uh, argued for in Scripture hasn't read these stories because it never, ever, ever goes well. Anytime you see it, it goes terribly. So Jacob takes off and he leaves town and, you know, he grabs whatever he's got. He's got the stick with the bag over and he's, you know, walking out on the trail on his way to Padan Aram. And he doesn't know anybody there. He's never been there, but he's just out on his own. And you have to think about what this must have felt like for him. 
Right? There's no victory in receiving the blessing or the um, or or the the inheritance that he thought he so desperately wanted. There's no victory in this. He's walking away from the family, walking away from the inheritance. He goes with a blessing, but he basically is not getting the thing that he wanted that he was trying so hard to make happen. And he's at a low point. He's all alone on this road, all by himself, going to this place where he knows nobody, fleeing from his brother who wants to kill him. He's got to be feeling alone. He's got to be feeling kind of desperate just to basically stay alive at this point. And knowing that everything that he knew in his life now was just blown up. Right? His family now is in turmoil. He's never going to see his mom again. Him and his brother don't have a relationship anymore. And his dad is going to pass soon. He's not going to get any of the stuff that he hoped he was going to have. And so it says, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I mean, it, it doesn't get much lower than this. Right? He's in a certain place, it says. And I mean, the, if you look at the original translation of what a certain place, it literally means like nowhere. He's in a nowhere place. He's at a rest stop on an exit somewhere in Iowa. Like, you know, you, like, you go inside, you're like, where am I? You look at the map and there's like a big star on it. And you're like, how far till I get to someplace I want to be? Like, I don't want to be. In Iowa, um, he, he's just nowhere, and there's nobody there. I mean, it's literally a desert. There's no people. There's nothing there on the side of the road. I mean, you, you know, I, I like watching these videos on, on YouTube where these guys go out in the woods, and they just build, like, you know, some sort of shelter, like, from nothing, and, you know, it's like, I'm going to sleep in the woods tonight. I'm going to get some, you know, fur bales and, you know, make a, like, you know, stack up the stuff and get these things, you know. There's nothing there. There's nothing for him to make anything out of. There's no people. There's no town. There's no food. There's no water. There's a, he's just there. It says, like, to go to sleep, he just finds a nice rock to sleep on. You know you're in trouble when you're sleeping on a rock. It doesn't get any lower. It doesn't get any worse for him. He's got to be feeling like, I just, I just blew up my whole life, and now I'm all alone. And I'm in the middle of the desert. There's nothing here. And I feel, like, so far from everything in my life. And I'm in this random place that I don't want to be in. I'm just dying to get to where I'm supposed to be. And then it says he goes to sleep on a rock. Verse uh, 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Thanks a lot, God. This is a deserted place. There's nothing here. Your descendants will, take, will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north, to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Right? So there he is all alone, all by himself, on the side of the road in Iowa, sleeping on a rock. And yet, here's God who comes to him in his lowest moment, in a nowhere place. Like, I think we have this, we have two things wrong sometimes when we talk about God and we think about where he's at. Sometimes we think he's tied to a location. That would have been the concept that all the people in that time were living under. That God is tied to a concept, right? or to a, to a location, 
right? So like, in other words, God is up high on the mountain somewhere or he's down low in, you know, the lower parts where the valleys and the rivers are, but he's like, God's in a place. Or you enter into a low, uh, an area, right? And you say, well, who's the God of this town? Or who's the God of this place? Or who's the God of this people, right? So their gods were localized. They were tied to locations. And Jacob is in a nowhere place where nobody is in like, just out of the way, all by himself in a deserted place. And he's at his lowest moment. And here's God who comes to him outside of any location that has of any meaning. And he basically meets with him in that place and extends the covenant that he had given to Abraham and Isaac to him. Now, Jacob hasn't earned this in any way. He's the worst character in the story so far. I mean, him and Esau are both terrible. There's no reason why God should be coming to him and saying, like, I'm extending my my covenant to you because you're the better son. You're a terrible son. You're a terrible brother. You're not doing things right. You've blown up your whole life. You are alone. But God doesn't expect, uh, he doesn't follow through on his promises because of our behavior. He follows through on his promises because he's faithful to what he said he would do. And and he prophesied before these children even came out that the older would serve the younger, that he was going to continue his covenant through Jacob. And so here's Jacob at his lowest point. And where's God? He's in that place. He's not tied to a location somewhere. He's tied to a person, right? He's with Jacob in a nowhere place. And when Jacob is at his lowest point, he's there. Now, I want you to understand, God is with us no matter what is going on in our lives. When things are going great, God is with us. When things are going horrible, God is with us. In our lowest moments, God is there. If anyone would know that God is able to be there in his lowest moment, it's Jacob. And it's not because God is more active there or more active when we're in a bad spot. I think sometimes it's because we're more aware of God when we're isolated alone or in a low place. Right? And, and this was a conversation I had at camp. Like, so these, these kids were like, hey, this is a place, you know, I come to camp and this is, God is here. I meet God here. And I, I just, the whole week, I kept trying to help them understand God is not more present at Camp Lebanon than he is at your house. You are more present here than you are at your house. You put away your cell phone. You left some relationships that were, you know, keeping you up at night, some things that were not going so well for you. You walked away from some of the stress and some of the drama in your life. You put all that stuff aside, and then you came here expecting to meet God and in the middle of his beautiful creation, and oh, here he is. But guess what? If you were to create space in your life when you go home, he's still there. You just have to be aware of him. Jacob is just learning that God is going to be with him no matter what, that he's available no matter where he is because he is the God of Jacob. He's not the God of Padanaram, and he's not the God of, you know, uh, where they were living in, in Canaan. He's not the God of a location. He's the God of a people. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's our God, and he's now with us. And wherever we go, he's with us. This is why we can have church in, you know, uh, an event center, in a community center. Because God is here just the same way he is when we walk out of this building. He's here with us. He's here when we go somewhere else. He's here with us. He's there with us at work. He's with us in our neighborhood. He's with us in our families. He's in us. The Holy Spirit has now come and dwelt inside of us, and we take God wherever we go, even to Iowa. And so he's not connected to a location, and he's always there in your lowest times, and a lot of times he's there in your lowest times because you're most present in that place. Sometimes when things are going great, you just sort of push him out. 
and you're not aware of his presence. It's always there, but you're not aware of it. You're not present. And so he meets him and he gives him this incredible dream and he extends the covenant to him. And look what it says in Genesis 28, 15. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. In other words, it doesn't matter what you do, I'm promising and I'm faithful. I'm the one that made the covenant with Abraham and put him into a deep sleep and it was a one-sided thing where I said, I'm going to do this for you and it doesn't matter what you do. And I'm the one that made the covenant with Isaac and I'm the one that's now extending the covenant to you. This is my promise to you and it doesn't matter what you do. Now, you fast forward all the way ahead to Jesus because this is messianic language. I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your offspring. Uh, We can look ahead and see where the story is going. And we now know that that covenant piece is talking about Christ. Christ would come through Jacob's line and would be the thing that would bless the entire world through his offspring. And we see this, Jesus actually quoting this line In John chapter 1, there's Philip and Nathanael, and they're like getting to know who Jesus is. And Philip is kind of very impressed with Jesus and sees that he is the person that the uh, Old Testament was talking about, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And he tells Nathanael, hey, you should come check out Jesus, right? And Nathanael's like, can can anything good like come from where Jesus is from? Like he's a nobody from nowhere. Who is this guy? He doesn't mean anything, right? He's like, all right, I'll come come take a look. And Jesus kind of... uh, knows exactly how to cut through it sometimes with people. He can see the doubt on Nathaniel's face. He, can, he knows exactly how to talk to him to get him to see who he is. And so he says, hey, uh, Nathaniel, uh, I know you. You're, you're a really God-fearing Jew. Like a great, you're a great guy. And he goes, well, how do you know me? And he goes, well, I saw you before when you were sitting under the tree. And Nathaniel's like, what? what are you talking about? When I was sitting under the tree, nobody else was under that tree. How, do you, how did you see me there? What did you know about it? And he kind of refers to something that happened under that tree, and we don't know what that is. I'd really love to know it, because Nathaniel's response is pretty crazy. He's kind of freaked out that Jesus knows what was going on under that tree. I don't know what was happening under that tree, but it wasn't something that you'd want people to know about. So he says, this is what John chapter 1, verse 50, Jesus said, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree. So he says, like, hey, you believe because I was able to call out whatever happened under that tree that nobody else knows about. Right? Because like, I could see what was going on in that place. He says, but you will see greater things than that. Like, if you follow me, you'll see some things that will absolutely blow your mind. You'll understand that I'm the Messiah. You'll see it, it through my life as you follow me. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So angels descending and ascending on something, just like Jacob had seen in his, in his dream. So Jesus essentially says to to Jacob, I'm the staircase. You saw angels uh, ascending and descending on a staircase that went from the the ground to heaven, right? The only way that you can go from here to there is by ascending up the staircase of Christ. There's only one way that you get to be part of what's going on in heaven, and that's by allowing Jesus to make a way for you. When he says, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your offspring, he's talking about Christ. And when Christ refers back to that, he's saying, I'm the staircase Jacob saw in that dream. That there's something that connects heaven and earth, and it's Jesus Christ. There's something that connects man and God, 
It is the fully man, fully God person of Jesus Christ. There's something that takes you from a low place on an off-ramp in the middle of Iowa to being in relationship with God. It's Christ. That's the only way. There's only one way to ascend into heaven to have relationship with God and to be living there for eternity. And it's through the person of Jesus Christ, through the Son of Man, through the one that basically this entire story has always been about. We can see him every step of the way through the Old Testament and every step of the way through the New Testament. And it's always been about Jesus. The Old Testament was preparing us for Christ. And then the New Testament was showing us Christ. And now it's our job to receive Christ and to be part of God's plan. And it goes on, verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 16. And when Jacob awoke from sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So he basically says, I'm going to rename this location House of God. That's what Bethel means, House of God. I don't know if you went to Bethel. I'm not, I, I, don't, I only hear stories about it. I don't know if it's the House of God, but everyone at Northwestern says it's not. Everyone at Bethel says it is. I'm not passing any judgment. I'm just saying, okay? It, he, 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 he still doesn't really exactly understand it. He still thinks God is tied to a location. He thinks he lucked out into the one spot where God is in the whole world. He still doesn't, he's not quite there. He's going to get there. At some point later, he's going to pass back through this place and have this incredible encounter with God again, where God's going to show him again who he is and going to prove to him again that he's not tied to a location. But he basically sets up an altar, pours oil over it, and says, this is the location in which I encountered God. And we asked that question ahead of time. And, and I don't know what your answers were. I know some of my answers would be on mission trips that I'd been on, at camps that I'd, I'd been to, um, you know, ch- different churches, different people's living rooms that I encountered God in relationship with them and in, in small groups. Like, there are definitely places where you have an encounter with God, but you have to realize it's not because God was more present there, it's because you were more present there. And so, great, throw up an altar to God and praise Him for meeting you in that location but then realize that you can meet him anywhere you are at any point in your life. And so that's what Jacob does. And he finishes by saying, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of that you give me I will give you a tenth. And this is just so stupid. He still doesn't understand what's happening here. It doesn't matter what you think or what you're going to do. It matters that God has reached out to you and he's made this offer to you. And, you know, look at the language that he uses. Like, if God will be with me and will watch over me, then I will, anytime you pray a prayer that says, if God, you will do this, then I will do that, you are not in a good place. Oftentimes it's like, God, if you let me get through this test so I don't fail this class, then I will study for the rest of my life. God, if you 
well, you know, God, if this pregnancy test will not be accurate, you know, then, or will not be positive, then we will live a life that honors you in the rest of our relationship, right? If you will get me off of this mountain, I had a friend who was on a mountain in a thunder and lightning storm, and she prayed, if you will get me off this mountain, I will serve you for the rest of my life. That one actually kind of worked out. She's a missionary. I'm just going to be honest, but, <laughs> but anytime you are giving God like an ultimatum and saying, if you do this, then I will do this. You're in a bad spot because God has offered you everything and asked for nothing in return. His behavior is not contingent on your behavior. He will follow through on his commands and be faithful to the things that he says he will do no matter what you do. Right? Bartering with God, trying to control and manipulate God is a zero-sum game. It doesn't work. It's not going to help you in your relationship with God. You can't manipulate him. Right? You you see the manipulation that Jacob has had in all of his other relationships come into his relationship with God. And you have to imagine God is just like, okay, buddy, like, I don't know what to say to you. Like, I'm not, I don't care what you're, what you're saying right now. I'm going to do this. You're welcome to join me in it. Right? That's essentially what he's, what he's saying to him. And you, you know this, this story if you have kids, right? Because if you have kids and they want something from you, sometimes they're trying to play all the angles and manipulate you into whatever it is that they want you to do. And there'll be times when you can see right through what they're saying and you're kind of like, I'm sorry, dude, this isn't like up for debate. Like, here's the situation. This is what's going to happen. And you can keep trying to manipulate me all you want. It's not going to help you, right? And then he gets to the end here and he says, I will return safely to my fathers. If you return me safely, if you become the God that I want you to become, then I will, I will serve you, then you can be my God, and I will give you a tenth. God, a tenth of this, a tenth of all of this will be yours, God. His only possession he had was oil, as far as I can tell, and he just put the whole thing on the, what does he have to offer God? The, the inheritance that he's already been promised by God, the blessing that he's already been given by God. What does he have to offer God? He's basically saying like, hey, God, if you do this, I will return a tenth to you. No, no, no. He should be saying, God, everything you give me is yours, and I'll use it in any way you want me to use it. I think that there's a big, huge disconnect with us when we think about the stuff that we have to, uh, to, to leverage in our lives. We've been given money. We've been given things. We've been given, uh, you know, positions. We've been given relationships. There's a lot of things in our life that we think is ours. And sometimes we even talk ourselves into saying, well, if I give a tenth back to God, then look at me. I'm doing better than everybody else. And I'll be honest with you, like, not a lot of people give a tenth. There's a very low number of people who tithe anymore or who give a tenth of their of their time, or who give a tenth of their gifts, or give a tenth of what they've got. There's a very low number of people that even get to a tenth. There's something that flips when you understand who Christ is, and the fact that God has given you everything that you have in your life, and all of it is to leverage for his kingdom. Before we got started with this church, I mean, listen, I I will say this. I'll be very, very honest and frank. Like, I've always struggled in the area of being generous. It's not something that's natural for me. So if you're somebody who struggles with being generous, like, I just want to give you an out. The pastor is probably worse at it than you are, okay? So don't feel like I'm hammering you. But before we got started with this church, we sat down our kids, and we were trying to, like, how do we explain to them we want to take them out of this big church with an awesome slide, a huge kids ministry program, and, and they're like, 
they're like rock stars at this place, and they're checked in more than any other person in the entire building, and everybody there knows their name, and they're like, you know, they just, they were there all the time, and all the staff members and volunteers knew who they were, and like, they just own the place. And we sit down with them, and we're like, hey, God's called us to start a new church with none of those things. You're, you're essentially no slides, no indoor play land areas, no, you know, huge you know, programs, nothing. We're essentially going to go do what God's called us to do. And we had the conversation that in our life, in our family, everything we have belongs to God. And whatever he's given us, we're going to leverage for him. And we're going to go and do what he's called us to do. We're going to start a church. You know what our kids' response to that conversation was? It was not what you would have expected. Kids get this a whole lot more than we get this. You know, both of them were like, okay, well, what do I have to leverage? What can I give to God? What can I use for God's glory and his kingdom? How can I do, you know, hey, I have this doll. Can I use this doll for Jesus? Like, it was really hard to figure out how to explain to use an old ratty doll for Jesus, right? Like, but like, they got it. I, I think if we were able to flip and understand that everything we have is, is God's and he's called us to leverage what we've got for his kingdom, we wouldn't be thinking in percentages anymore. We wouldn't be thinking a tenth. We wouldn't be thinking... You know, whatever, we would just be like, hey, I have this to steward. It's all from God. It's all his. What do I need to do with this? That would be the right question to ask, right? And if you're a manipulator and you're trying to manipulate God, you're like, I'm going to buy you with a tenth. Great. You could, you could tithe all day long and still be missing out completely on what it means to be generous because you think you're buying God's approval and his blessing with your tithe. This is, this is not what it's about. And I think like, Jacob is still in that place where he's trying to manipulate God and he's trying to barter with God and he's trying to control God and this is just not going to work. But you know what's amazing? Even in a nowhere location, God reaches out to him. Even at his lowest moment, God reaches out to him. Even when he doesn't deserve anything, God does extend the covenant to him and does all the work on his behalf. Like this is the grace that's been offered to us through Jesus it says, you are a sinner and don't deserve anything from God. And yet he reaches out to you, creates a way for you, brings you into this beautiful relationship with him, this new life, and offers you everything in return for what? For nothing. But that's exactly what the gospel is all about. Jacob, he's not earned it. He doesn't deserve it. Uh, we're going to see as the story goes on in two weeks from now, and God is so good to him, even in spite of his own failures and his own issues and his own junk. And it's the same thing that God offers to us in our relationship with him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for reaching out to us in our sin and our brokenness and our imperfection and our manipulation, God, in our our way of trying to do things and not letting us stay in that place. Thank you for the gospel, the story of Christ coming to our world, living a sinless life and connecting us with God, being the staircase that brings us into relationship with God. Help us to, uh, to ascend to a place where we know God and we are in relationship with him. God, I thank you that you are with us in every location I pray that you would help us to be present. I thank you that you are with us in every place in life, even when we are at our lowest place, God. I pray that you'd help us to be present there even, to feel your presence 
And God, thank you for the things that you have given us. Would you show us what it looks like to steward those things? In Jesus' name, amen.